Today we're fasting maybe not what you normally would fast during Lent. It's not about giving up chocolate or caffeine, um, but it's really about fasting things that are, are cluttering up our lives, cluttering up our souls, uh, really trying to, to lead our hearts through a process of transformation and not just um, maybe fasting little things. And so um, talking about, she didn't use the word rationalism, but I can't remember the word, but the, just the tidy faith. Remember that we, we fasted tidy faith? Um, if you've ever been through a time where it doesn't seem like what you've believed, the Bible says, matches the reality of your life. And so sometimes you have to adjust like what we thought. Uh, it doesn't, some people are like, oh no, God's word doesn't change. You're right, God's word doesn't change. But sometimes our interpretation was off to begin with and needed a little bit of adjustment. Um, and we bring ourselves maybe in line with more with who God is. And so yesterday was day 10 of the 40 days of decrease. Today, of course, because it's Sunday, is not an official day of Lent. Uh, that's one, somebody asked me that, why isn't, aren't Sundays included? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know a lot about Lent. But every day, there's a little tidbit about where Lent came from and um, trying to teach you the, the history of why the church goes through this period and this season. And it all leads up to Holy Week. And Holy Week starts on Palm Sunday, which will be March 24th. We'll talk a little bit more about Palm Sunday when we get there. Um, and then we're trying to, to locate a church where we can participate in Thursday, Friday services with, with someone else, just to give you a, an opportunity to experience that. And so hopefully by next Sunday, excuse me, I'll be able to share that a little bit with you. And so last week we looked at John the Baptist. He was our mentor of the week, if you will, in the area of decrease. Uh, his verse from John chapter 3, verse 30, that I must decrease and Jesus must increase. Then we talked about John in prison at the end of his life, some of the unmet expectations that John had to wrestle with. Because I mean, John's theology didn't match who Jesus really was. And so it needed a little bit of correction. And that's kind of what we've been talking about. And so today's mentor... It, she doesn't have a name. Uh, we don't know what her name is. Some of us are tempted because there's different stories told in the Gospels about different women like her to give her a name. Um, but those stories sometimes are not the same story. It's not like this Gospel writer is just misremembering or maybe forgot her name and didn't write that down. Uh, a lot of times these are very different stories. And sometimes they're just told from a different perspective. And so today, we're going to talk about a lady that, again, we don't know her name, but she's known by her love. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to go to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, and, you know, against the, the directions from my professor in my intro to exegesis class, uh, I'm going to put the verse on the screen today as well. Uh, but they tell us if we put the verse on the screen, you teach people not to bring their Bibles to church. So prove them wrong. Okay, we're going to put the verse on the screen for maybe those that don't have a Bible or forgot their Bible, but you don't forget your Bibles, and then, you, then I can write to my professor and say, you were wrong, it didn't work. <laughs> and so I want to tell you from the outset that I want to make a lot of statements today that might challenge belief systems. I want you to listen to everything that I'm saying. And I'm, I'm not making, I'm not trying to make... Um, conclusions. So if it sounds like a conclusion, it's probably not a conclusion. Um, 
And so I'll apologize for that in advance. I've really tried to choose wording today that makes this something that we should wrestle with. And we're going to give you time at the end of service, again, about five minutes to just sit and think and ponder and listen and maybe wrestle with some of those things. And so Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, we're going to read this this encounter um, with Jesus, some Pharisees, his disciples, and uh, an unnamed woman. And then we're going to talk about it. So starting in verse 36... One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Verse 38, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping. Okay, so remember when they sit at the table... Like they sit with their feet behind them. So that's why his feet are back. Okay, they're sitting on the floor, maybe on a pillow, small table. His feet are going to be behind him. So that's, that's why she's there. She stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet... He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. I love it that that Luke says Jesus answered him, even though he also says that Luke, that Simon just had these thoughts in his head. (laughs) Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, And the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose... (laughs) I mean, I don't want to make a conclusion here, Jesus. (laughs) But I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and he said, Simon... Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. A kiss of greeting would have been very common. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So today, I've titled the message, Reputation Reduction. Reputation reduction. I really struggled with a title for this message. Um, It really comes from the concept we'll look at later from Philippians chapter 2, where uh, a lot of versions will say Jesus emptied himself and became, you know, when he came to earth. Uh, The King James, the New King James, will say Jesus made himself of no reputation. Um, Here's the, the thought behind that. Sometimes our reputation gets in the way of what we need to do in the kingdom. And we have to be willing to make ourselves of no reputation. That doesn't mean live a life where you get a bad reputation because you're a jerk. But 
we have to be willing to make ourselves of no reputation. And I hope that makes sense uh, when we get to the end today. And so each of the gospel accounts has a story or stories of women who come and anoint Jesus. They're all a little bit different. Some of them, the women are named. They're placed at different locations. Um, There could be a lot of reasons for that. But Luke has chosen today to put his um, in the context of Jesus has healed a centurion servant. So there's a guy, um, a Roman centurion. His servant is sick. Jesus heals him. Then he raises a dead boy in the city of Nain. In fact, uh, I do have a picture of the map. I know that some of you like to know where some of these things are. Nain is what we think today is the, the Muslim city of Nain. Okay? And so if you're not familiar, the, the shaded area in the land of Israel over there is the West Bank. Okay? And so like, that's not Israeli territory. That's Palestinian or Muslim-controlled area. And so this city kind of falls somewhere either in the northern part of that region or above. And so if you remember from our conversations, the the Galilee area is where the Hasidim go. So the Hasidim are these righteous people. They, coming back out of exile, want to be people of the text. They want to know the scriptures. They want to make sure that they follow the scriptures. They don't want to go back into exile. Um, And out of that group comes the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are the leaders who genuinely want to do their best to keep the law. And so in order to do that, they put all the laws around that law and then, you know, the parameters. And so there's extra laws and traditions that they put around because they don't want people to get close to breaking the law. Because here's the thing. If we keep the law good enough, Messiah will come. We understand the futility of that. Like, you you can't keep the law good enough. Jesus came to show us That's not even why the law was given. The law was given because God chose you as his people and this is how you're to live. And he even made provision for when you fail. Like he even gave you sacrifices. So it wasn't like God's like this egomaniac that's like you have to do this perfectly. He's just like, I want you to just stay with it. I want you to be consistent. I want you to be faithful. Um, And they just turned back from it. They just didn't even stick with it at all. Um, And so coming back out of exile, they really want to do this. And so these are who the Pharisees are. And Luke puts the conversation that Jesus has with John's disciples that we looked at last week right before this story. And we don't know, the the woman comes in, we don't know much about this woman. We don't know if she's ever encountered Jesus before. We don't know if maybe the, the conversation between Jesus and John, maybe this is one of John's disciples. Maybe this woman came out to John and was baptized by John. Like, or maybe she has no understanding. Maybe she's only heard stuff. We really don't know. And so what Luke explains to us is that after these events that have happened, Jesus accepts an invitation to dine at a Pharisee's house. Now, Jesus dines with tax collectors and sinners all the time. Like, we see that. But he also dines with Pharisees, the religious elite of the day. And it's always interesting to me that even in our world today, people are like, There's, well, I, I don't want to be with those people. I don't want to be with those people. Uh, uh, you know, it just, I don't want to be with, you know, the, the ministerial association in town because, you know, like some of those denominations aren't really preaching full truth. Okay, but it, the Pharisees weren't preaching full truth and yet Jesus dined with them. Like, be careful that we don't exclude people that we're actually supposed to sit with 
at times. So Jesus, we most of the time don't have problems with him eating with tax collectors and sinners. In fact, he was called a friend of sinners. And if you look back a few verses, something we read last week, Luke chapter 7, verse 33, John the Baptist, these are the words of Jesus, didn't spend his time eating bread or drinking wine, and you say, he's possessed by a demon. The Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. See, that's the common name that the religious people gave to Jesus. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, can I tell you, that's not a compliment. They're not saying, look, he's... He's, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Great job, Jesus. When I, I wrestle with what a modern-day equivalent of that would be, and I know that this might sound terrible, but I think that the modern-day equivalent would be Jesus being called woke. Because he's eating with people that are actually keeping the kingdom from coming. He's eating with people that he has no business eating with. Can I, he's not being soft. On, I'm not saying he was woke. And we're going to talk about this word a lot today. Because I think there is a woke cultural agenda that is a reality in our world today. But I also think the church is starting to get triggered by any word and is starting to call some things woke that I think is actually Jesus sitting at a table. And we've got to start wrestling and being a little slower to speak when it comes to some of these things. So Jesus at the end of this passage says, wisdom is proved right by her children. See, here's what I know. Knowledge is being able to take the facts of this book and like tell people they're living wrong because it says right here you're living wrong. Wisdom is learning to take the information in this book and know how to apply it to a certain situation. And it seems that Jesus takes some information and applies it one way in one situation and applies it a different way in a different situation. And it's not that truth changes, but the application is going to be different depending on who he's with. He even tells us, you know, you don't put Jewish truth in front of Gentiles. Like, you, you have to know your audience. You have to know who you're sitting with and who you're talking to. And so when he says wisdom is proved right by your children, he says you know, the end result is what we're looking for. And sometimes you're not going to know the end result this side of heaven. And sometimes I think we're going to get to heaven and be surprised by some people we see there. And we're going to be surprised that some ministries that maybe we labeled woke or we labeled like false teachings or heresies, they're actually going to have, been, have brought people into the kingdom. And so I want us to be a church that really just takes a minute wrestles with something, and doesn't pronounce judgment on people quickly. Jesus, when he says to his disciples, he says, come follow me. That's an invitation. Come follow me. That's not an invitation to get saved. It's not like when the disciples dropped their nets and followed Jesus, they got saved. What was happening was he says, come follow me. I'm going to show you how to live. Spend time with me. I'm going to teach you. You're going to learn about me. And he called more than his 12 disciples. He called hundreds of people to follow him. Some of them, in the midst of learning some things that he taught, turned back and no longer followed him. 
You understand? So it wasn't like they were already, already all in. They were just coming to find out who he was, what he taught, what he believed. And I worry that in our culture today, I know that we're like, well, but after the resurrection, it's all about repent. I, I'm not going to disagree with that. But we don't make provision for people to follow Jesus unless they like, agree with everything Jesus said and turn from every sin and everything and you got to do all of it. We don't allow people to maybe just come and follow Jesus and somewhere along the line make a decision to follow Jesus. C.S. Lewis, who everyone loves, I mean, Chronicles of Narnia, he taught all these things, and screw tape letters and blah, blah, blah. Do you know that C.S. Lewis is actually sometimes put down because he allowed for anonymous Christians? Look at some of his characters in the Narnia series. I can't. I, I tried. I boggled my mind this week trying to figure this out. But the the guy that was like following the the the, the bad person, uh, and he's like, I realized that, um, and he meets Aslan for the first time, and he's like, it was you I was following all along. Like I thought I was following good, but by following that guy, but then I realized that I was following you. That's what. Some people call anonymous Christian. It was like they were following one thing, but it was actually God that they were following all along. And it's like people read C.S. Lewis and they're like, well, that, he was a little off there. I don't know if he was off. Keep listening. Keep listening. There's a lot of debate that swirls right now uh, around the ads he gets us from the Super Bowl. Um, very woke ads in a lot of people's minds. And I would tell you, please investigate the conclusions, the, read the Bible reading plans that they put you to. Read the, the alpha groups that they set you up with because um, they've been actually doing ads all over the place for three years, but no one ever talks about it except after Super Bowl Sunday because everybody watches it on Super Bowl Sunday and, and then everybody throws their opinion in. Um, I'm going to say this about that. Wisdom will be proven right by her children. So whether those ads are good or bad, effective or not, um, Eternity will reveal. I don't know. Like, I really don't. But um, we need to be slow to speak. So Jesus, sitting at a table. What's this, what's this have to do with Jesus sitting at this table? Oh, quite a bit. He's sitting at a table of a wealthy religious leader, probably eating some pretty good food. And word spreads that Jesus is at Simon's house. A woman who had lived a sinful life in that town. Okay, so this woman lived, she, everyone knew her, she lived a sinful life in that town. Like, her sin is locally sown and locally known, if you will. Like, she's there. Okay, everybody's aware of who this woman is. So it's not like houses today. It's not like she broke in. Like there would have been an open air area. She could have come in and been a part of this. And this woman, I want you to imagine this woman for just a minute. Everywhere she goes, her reputation as a sinner shadows her. Everywhere. I wonder how easy it is for people in, that have that reputation to change it. Do you know how hard it is to change your reputation? Like, you can lose a reputation in just a second. And sometimes it's, it's deservingly. Sometimes we do things that we earn that reputation. But I'd, I wonder in the church world if we make it easy for people to change their reputation. Because I have experienced people that are trying to put God first in their lives, and, and yet they still have that stamp 
that people say, I've watched people fall in ministry and then try to walk through a restoration process and forever known as the person that did that thing. That's who this woman is. And I wonder if that woman is welcome at our table so that we can actually influence her, bring her to a place where we can look past the past lens that's maybe keeping her bound and getting her to a place of freedom that might take more than just one encounter with Jesus. She learns that Jesus is is near, and so she comes. And like we looked at John last week and said, hey, how can John mentor us? I want to do the same thing today with this lady. How can she mentor us? And the first thing that is very obvious in this passage is that this lady is committed to gratitude. She brought a, a jar with her. Now, she calls an audible once she gets there. But she comes with the intent, probably to anoint his head. There's really no reason to anoint his feet, other than maybe the fact that that maybe, we'll we'll talk about that. Culturally, this would be for his head. She brought an, Luke doesn't say expensive, but it's probably expensive. She's going to have to break it to open it because it's an alabaster jar, just like Mary who broke the alabaster jar later in the, the Gospels and the, the house in Bethany, fragrance filled everything. This woman comes intentionally premeditated to offer gratitude to Jesus. I don't know if she's been forgiven by Jesus herself, if she's been forgiven by John, but the, question, the, the thing we see is that she's grateful. And my question for us today is, are we this grateful? Like, not only does she come wanting to bring this gift, but it's like in the moment, she gets so overwhelmed by who she was and who Jesus is that she cries enough to, to like, put tears on his feet like how much is she crying to for that to happen she recognizes what happens he hasn't had his feet washed we're clear of that from the 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 picture here because simon didn't give jesus water to wash his feet when he came in the house in that day and age You know, it's like living on a gravel road. Amen. Like your car on a gravel road, that's what their feet look like. (laughs) Praise God. Isn't that disgusting? I mean, now you know why the feet were behind them at the table if they didn't get washed. And so imagine crusty feet, almost like people writing wash me on your car. Her tears starting to mix with that and in almost in embarrassment, being like, she came to do a good thing for him, and now it's almost like she's ruined the moment. I love that Jesus doesn't chide her for emotionalism. Stop being so emotional. In fact, he almost chides Simon for not showing any emotion. And so she gets down and wipes her feet with his hair. And I don't know how you want to slice this, um, but what she's doing is a very intimate thing and a very inappropriate thing in that culture. Like, the tension in the room must have been quite thick. 
So why do I say that Jesus would be labeled woke? Because what is going on here? Like, who is this guy that's letting this lady... Like, what's he doing? Like, the religious people around the table, the disciples are probably a little uncomfortable with this. And while she's there, either she just recognizes... I just don't want to stand. Like she either, either can't stand and she anoints his feet or maybe she notices that his feet are cracked or dry or, and she just decides to anoint his feet. She kisses his feet. Like the posture of humility that she takes. There's just an overwhelming sense of gratitude. I mean, Simon at least invites Jesus to the table. He shows up at the worship service. Jesus is at my table. He does his devotions every single day. But the question is, is Jesus just sitting at your table? Or is Jesus experiencing the gratitude of your heart on a regular basis that says, you know what, I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to give you a kiss of greeting. I'm going to anoint you. Um, For Simon, it's a lot of show, but there's nothing internal taking place. Jesus says to Simon, Simon, I see this woman. Do you see this woman? And he calls out what Simon didn't do. And Jesus is like, he's not offended by it, but he's like, don't you dare say anything about her. My question, another question I want us to ask is, are those people welcome at our table? Because if you start having people like that at your table, you start walking with them, I think in our church world today, you're going to get labeled woke. I do. I've been labeled it already. People say that about me all the time. I'm not being soft on sin. I'm not saying the things that the Bible says are sin or not sin. I'm just making room for people to walk with Jesus and at some point make a decision to follow Jesus. I'm just trying to make sure that they have opportunity. Jesus says he's the only way to the Father, and I would not deny that. Jesus is the only way. But I'm going to tell you, I believe there are lots of ways to Jesus. Like C.S. Lewis, I think people can find Jesus in some places that the church world today is not going to be comfortable with. And I want us to be a church that welcomes those people at our table. In our world today, if you make room for people that don't appear righteous or don't appear to have fully respond or fully like walked away from their sin, if you don't do what like we don't have grace for people. People that start thinking outside the lines that we've drawn in our evangelical circles of interpretation get ostracized. And we stand up in the church world and we condemn cancel culture. You're canceling people out there. And yet we do the exact same thing in the church. Because when people start trying to do something or they, they start trying to like maybe step outside what we think are the bounds, we label them as woke and we cancel them. If you don't believe me, talk to Beth Moore, talk to Chris Hodges, talk to Alistair Begg and ask them, just to name a few. People that are trying to step out and make room for people to come to the table, not to rationalize their sin, not to excuse their sin, but to bring them into an encounter with the one that is going to be able to free them from their sin. And it's just going to get messier the further we go along. In Philippians chapter 2, 
Look at the wording that Paul uses here in Philippians chapter 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, any, any at all, make my joy complete by being like-minded. Oh, see, Pastor John, we've got to all think the same. False. They didn't all think the same. Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. We keep working towards unity in the body of Christ. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Remember when the disciples argued about who were the greatest? I've told you this over and over. They weren't arguing about who was the greatest. They were arguing about who was the most right. Who had the right interpretation? It is not very different than our tables today. Like in our church worlds, we want to we be the most right. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Well, what was his mindset? Who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation. These are the different translations. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, he became like us. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's what we refer to as the incarnation, Jesus becoming flesh. There's something in our world today that we refer to as incarnational ministry. Incarnational ministry is you, you put on like the situation of others. In other words, you go where they are. It's not a come to our church service, it's a go to them and say, hey, let's follow Jesus together. Let's read the scriptures together. Let's just walk through this and talk about what that means. Like, be willing to take people on a journey. Because today, we preach what we call the gospel to people, and then when they reject it, we're like, well, their hearts are just hard. If someone would just take the time to walk some of these people through the scripture, I think they would encounter a God that would transform them. I read a book at one point called The War of Loves about a homosexual activist who encountered God in a bar with his friend who for years had just walked with him through life. She, he knew she was a Christian. He asked her, why, didn't, why don't you ever preach to me? And in a bar, he encounters the love of God that tr- begins to transform him. Who, he walks away from the homosexual lifestyle. He's become an advocate for for Christ and being free. He's still tempted by homosexual tendencies. He thinks he's going to live a celibate life the rest of his life, and he's okay with that because he's fallen in love with Jesus. He never would have encountered Jesus the way we want him to. That's what we have to be willing to do. No, we can't compromise. No, we can't say that that's not sin. No, we can't do... But we can just walk with people. We go overseas and we go into a culture where polygamy is accepted. I've shared this, in, this illustration before. And there is a guy that's got five wives. 
and he, gets, he becomes a believer. <laughs> what do you do with that? Do you let him stay married to the five? I mean, one man, one woman for life. What do we do? He can't put them out. He can't divorce them. They'll have no recourse in that culture to survive. So he's got to still at least meet their needs. But is it fair to say, well, then he can only be intimate with one? Well, how about let's just nobody be intimate with anybody. We'll just punish everybody. Like, this is a messy situation. I'm glad I'm not a missionary going into that culture. Can I tell you, it's just as real for people, please hear, who maybe have had a, a partner for 30 years. The moment they accept Christ, yeah, I, I know it's a sin. I know. But we stand there and we're like, well, now you, you have to separate from that person. You have to break all ties because you're following Jesus, which I'm not going to say is wrong. But it's generally said by people who are clinging to rights and privileges that they ought to be laying down, demanding that they lay down that one. Remember the log spec? We, we, I'm not saying they don't have to. But I'm saying some of us are clinging to some things, maybe nationalism included, like our way, God bless America, that maybe we ought to lay down if we're going to demand that they lay that down. This is messy, isn't it? Remember the whole messy middle series? Yeah. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying... It's that the Bible is okay, homosexuality is not a sin. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying it's wrong to be a patriot. I think you ought to be a patriot. If you live in a country, I don't care which country it is, you ought to show love and honor to that country. Like, if you don't want to, then go to a different one where you can show love and honor. But I don't think that we have to, like, put down other countries. Like, we can let them honor the country they live in. Like, we can temper this thing. So I'm not saying that. Don't hear that. But we have gotten so locked into what our belief system is. Like we use the Bible to support whatever it is that we want to believe. Selfish ambition, vain conceit. And I'll tell you what, I could use this book to support all, anything I want. Just give me something and I can back it up through the Bible. That doesn't mean it's right. That just means that I'm twisting the scripture to give me what I want. We want to make sure we're not doing that. So there's a couple questions that I want us to wrestle with for f about five minutes. And again, we're going to put them on the screen so you can remember them. And the first and the most important question is, is Jesus at your table? Is Jesus at your table? Whether that means you've made a commitment to follow him or you've at least decided to, to find out more about him. I, he better be in the picture at your table. Like, that's the starting place. The second question that goes with that is, is how is he being welcomed at your table? Because at some point in following Jesus, you're going to be faced with a decision. Like, he is going to call you to full surrender. Lay everything down. Like, you can't follow Jesus and not come to a point of decision at some point. Like, it's going to happen. And so is Jesus just a, like an invite only, like Simon? He's at your table, but you're not really going out of your way to meet his needs, to 
to humble yourself before him, to be broken, to be fully abandoned. Uh, we had the superintendent from Hitchcock to Lair, Jeff Clark, spoke at chapel this week, gave a challenge to the students and said, his challenge to them was, I didn't fully, I didn't fully decide to follow Jesus until I was 40 years old. In other words, it's almost like um, every year you just realize, man, I've got to, I'm in another crossroads where I've got to lay something down. I've, following Jesus is just every day abandoning myself more and more. I'm guessing when he turns 50, he'll probably say, I didn't really start following Jesus till I was 50. <laughs> like, that's just the point. Like every day laying down. So is Jesus at your table? How's he being welcomed? Second question, who hasn't been welcomed at your table? Who, where do you need maybe some, a shift in perspectives? In John chapter 20, verse 23, there's this odd verse where Jesus says to the disciples, if you forgive people their sins, they're forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness, it's withheld. And scholars are like, well, that, and I agree. It can't mean that we have the power to forgive sins. We can't, we don't get to decide, well, we, we really love you. We care about you. So we're going to say that's not a sin. Well, we can't do that. And that's not what he's talking about. But it's almost like Jesus is, is telling us that it's okay to walk people on a journey. Like, you don't have to get them to admit every part of their life is a sin. Because I, I guarantee you, if I spent a week with you this week, I guarantee you, I could find something to work on. And you'd do the same for me. We, in fact, you wouldn't even have to spend a week with me. You could probably do it in an hour. I might have to spend a week with you. But it's, we're, we're not softening the message. We're not changing it. We're not compromising we're just saying, hey, just follow him. Just come. Come and see. The last one is probably one of the most important ones. Am I willing to make myself of no reputation? I told you a few years ago, I felt like the Lord put this question in my heart to make myself of no reputation. Um, and I, it sounded very spiritual. And I was like, yeah, okay, Jesus did it. I can do it. Can I tell you, it's the most painful experience of your life. Like knowing that you're doing something that others are going to accuse you of doing that you're not doing, but you're not going to defend yourself because that's just going to make it messy. And you're just going to keep walking. And it doesn't mean you do it alone. You do it in community because you don't want to become, you know, what's right in your own eyes type of person. Like Americans, we love to do. Like whatever's my way, I, I want to do it. We need community. Because if I choose my own way, I'm going to fall. So we do it together. So the question of, am I willing to make myself of no reputation? In other words, am I willing to misunder be misunderstood, falsely accused? Because your reputation could get in the way. One, for some of you, your reputation might be as a sinner. And you're trying to overcome it, and it's hard. Just keep overcoming. Don't let what other people say about you be a reason to stop seeking Jesus. Because what happens is you're going to make a mistake and the people that should rally around you are probably going to say, see, you didn't change at all. And that's not true. You have changed. You made a mistake. Pick yourself back up 
and just keep moving forward. But for others, you're going to have to be willing to say, you know what, I'm going to be accused. I might get called a friend of sinners, but I think it's worth it. So let's take five minutes. Alicia Britt Cole actually tells me to challenge you to find a place to kneel. And so I I would even do that. If you can find a place to kneel, these chairs, chairs where you are, if you can't kneel, don't kneel. Just close yourself in with Jesus. Is he at my table? Am I welcoming him at my table? Who's not at my table? And am I willing to make myself of no reputation? Am I willing to be one of those crazy Pentecostals with both hands up for Jesus? Because I just love him. I'm not worried if I shed a few tears, if I, you know, make the moment a little awkward for people. I'm willing to be no reputation. And I'm willing to be no reputation for him and for people around me. Let's process those for just the next five minutes. And then Thaddeus is going to come and close.
Well, I don't know about you, but I am grateful for a pastor who's willing to lead us and push us into some, maybe some uncomfortable questions that we're asking ourselves. But maybe something that'll help us kind of reframe these questions a little bit to maybe help us recognize that it's okay to be a little bit uncomfortable is, is maybe, and maybe I'll just throw in number four here, but maybe the, the last thing that we do today is remind ourselves that it's not actually our table. <laughs> it's Jesus' table, and he's invited us to his table. And so who are we to say that certain people are not allowed at his table? I recognize that, yeah, our table, our homes, our neighborhoods, our communities, our church, yes, but ultimately, it's not ours. It's the Lord's. And he's welcomed us first. The only response to that, or at least the first response to that, should be gratitude. And from there, it's this journey Pastor Tom mentioned the word journey a couple times, right? It's, it's a journey. Some of you, maybe in this moment, you're feeling a little uncomfortable. You're like, I, I, I don't know where I'm at right now with all of this. But can I remind you that the end destination is not 1127 today? <laughs> this is a journey. We're in this together. We don't need to land at answers in this moment. But we can process together at his table. And we can welcome others to join us in that journey. We sang this song earlier this morning, Gratitude. And I thought it would be good, and, and Pastor Tom thought it would be a good idea if, if we maybe sang that song one more time, just to remind ourselves, God, this is your table. My life is your table, God. And I want to respond appropriately with a heart of gratitude. And I think when we do that, when we put our, our heart and our attitudes and our, our life posture in the correct form of gratitude. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. I think that helps us to start maybe some of those tough questions along the, the way, along the journey that we're on. So will you stand with us as we sing one more time this morning? And when we're done, Stan's going to close us off. But as we're singing this song, let's remind ourselves, God, we're at your table. And we're grateful that you have welcomed us to sit alongside you. I've got nothing new How could I express Verse 3, I've got no response I've got one response I've got just one move With my arms stretched wide I will worship you so I throw up my hands, praise you again and again. Cause all that I have is a hallelujah, hallelujah. And I know it's not much, but I've nothing else fit for a king, except for a heart singing hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, come on, my soul. Oh, come on, my soul. 
Oh, don't you get shy on me, lift up your song. See, you've got a lion inside of those lungs. Get up and praise the Lord. Oh, come on, my soul. Come on, my soul. Oh, don't you get shy on me, lift up your song. The lion inside of those lungs. Get up and praise the Lord. So I throw up my hands, praise you again and again. All that I have is a hallelujah, hallelujah. And I know it's not much, there's nothing else fit for a king. Set for a heart singing, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. Sing that one more time. Throw up my hands, praise you again and again. So all that I have is a Hallelujah, Hallelujah. And I know it's not much. There's nothing else fit for a king Except for a heart singing Hallelujah 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 Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I just pray for your blessing on each and every person who is here today. I just pray, Lord God, you would go with us today. Lord, let our gratitude show when we are around other people. And Lord, let us just come to you with just a sense of thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. A sense of gratitude in every, everything, every part of our lives, Lord God. And I just just thank you, Lord, right now for your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness. And I, I just stand in awe of you, Lord God. I thank you. Just go with each one here today, Lord God. Just walk with us today and help us just to glorify you. I thank you. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. Go in peace. You are dismissed. Thank you. Amen.